Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The cool thing about music is that it's a renewable resource. It can also be very good at recycling. Trends and fads and sounds and styles come and go all the time. We're into some and others not so much. But every once in a while, we end up with a perfect cultural storm where musical, social, political, and demographic conditions all come together at exactly the right time. The result is a trend in sound and style that captures everyone's imagination, and it can be really, really exciting. These storms tend to last about six years. The first two are the buildup. Then there's the frenzied peak that lasts, I don't know, 12 to 18 months. And finally, we have the long, slow denouement when the party breaks up, leaving the stranglers passed out on the floor. Think of the Beatles from 64 to 70. Think of punk rock from 76 to 82. Think of grunge from 90 to 96. And now think of Britpop, an era when the sun once again never seemed to set on the empire. That party ran from about 1991 to 1997. London was swinging again. British acts were selling tens of millions of albums the world over. It was fresh and fun and cool. And then it was over. Cool Britannia collapsed under the weight of overexposure, boredom, and drugs. And let me tell you something. There were lots and lots of drugs. Let's take a look back to see how this all happened. This was Britpop. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and if you're of a certain age, you might remember the early 1990s. There was a time, actually a long time, when it seemed that every week brought an awesome new band with an incredible song. Now, my memory might be a little addled, but I seem to recall this period running from sometime in late 1989 through to sometime in late 96 or, or maybe early 97. This music came from all directions. The Canadian music scene enjoyed a period of renaissance with the rise of the Tragically Hip, Our Lady Peace, Sloan, and so many others. The U.S. was mainly about grunge and the punk revival, but also the Lollapalooza generation. They got into industrial music and hip-hop. And from across the Atlantic came Britpop. That was good. Blur, Oasis, Suede, Elastica, and about a billion others. But while Canada and the American alternative nation seemed to go hand in hand, Britpop was actually the UK playing defense. From the very beginning, Britpop's goal was to defend the empire from the grunge marauders from the colonies. Grunge had invaded the kingdom and was slowly conquering Her Majesty's lands. For a while, the proud tradition of British rock and roll was being supplanted by bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden. And you can blame a void in British music. The club and rave culture that had swept the nation in the 1980s had waned. The Manchester scene featuring the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays was pretty much over. Shoegaze failed to ignite the masses. And so with no homegrown material to fill the pop culture vacuum, which, by the way, coincided with the rise of Nirvana's Nevermind, sucked grunge and other American alt-rock into the British Isles. The British music press was only too happy to welcome their new alien overlords. After all, they needed something to write about. But this American invasion did not sit well with a generation of British musicians. They not only felt ignored by their own country, but rejected. And for music from a country led by Republican presidents seemed bent on world domination? 
a few of these young Brits decided to do something about the situation. The very first signs of what we would eventually call Britpop appeared in 1992 with a band called Suede. While most of the UK was mad for grunge, Suede would have none of that rot. Instead, Suede celebrated the great eccentric English rock of the 70s and 80s. Bowie, Roxy Music, T-Rex, The Smiths, Morrissey, British Psych, Jagger Swagger, Glam Guitars. And singer Brett Anderson played up the part of the dandy English fop, proudly singing in a London accent. This was not grunge. Released on February 22, 1993, that's Suede with Animal Nitrate, the third single from their 92 self-titled album. It's hard to describe how different that song sounded to English ears. Those sharp, slashing guitars, the glamminess of it all. It was fresh, but it was also somehow familiar. It brought back memories of classic British rock from the early 70s, and that's exactly what singer Brett Anderson had in mind. Another guy who was really upset about the appearance of flannel shirts on British shores was Damon Albarn of Blur. He was not only tired of seeing British kids go nuts over Pearl Jam, he was also rather jealous of how Suede had carved a niche for themselves while Blur continued to struggle creatively. They were stuck in some kind of post-Madchester funk which just wasn't working. So, after a good think, Damon and Blur decided to adopt a new mission statement. I will quote, if punk was about getting rid of hippies, he said, then I'm getting rid of grunge. People should smarten up, be a little more energetic. They're walking around like hippies again. They're stooped. They've got greasy hair. There's no difference. Whether they like it or not, they're listening to Black Sabbath again. It irritates me. This made for some very good press in the British music papers. And something seemed to build in the winter of 93-94. It was small at first. Like-minded people began to gather in places like The Good Mixer, which was a pub in Camden. On Oxford Street, there was a regular Thursday night club evening at a venue called Syndrome. And the British music press eventually picked up on what was going on. There was a new monthly magazine called Select, which began to devote many, many pages to this new generation of homegrown indie bands. Another magazine called The Face began to do the same. And the weekly papers, The Enemy and Melody Banker, sunk their teeth into what appeared to be a new and very viable local music scene. But then something happened that no one could have expected. Kurt Cobain killed himself. And that prematurely killed any momentum grunge had. In a weird way, this opened the door for everything that happened in British rock for the next several years because it created another vacuum. With American-bred rock now suddenly on the decline... British bands had a chance to gain a toehold in Britain. And who was waiting to be sucked in? Blur. They were in the right place at the right time with the right album. Just 17 days after Kurt died, Blur released a career-altering and game-changing, not to mention a very, very British album, called Park Life. Blur got lucky, but they were also very good. 
For whatever reason, the Park Life album had multi-generational appeal. After it was released on April 25, 1994, it was embraced by everyone from indie hipsters to mums and dads. Something about the Englishness of it all. Next up was Oasis. Hype had been building around these guys through 1993 and early 94. A couple of singles hinted at something new and fresh, yet again, extremely familiar. There was something so Beatles, so Rolling Stones about them, that Oasis felt almost comforting. It also didn't hurt that Oasis made for great press, outrageous comments, fights, arrests, drugs, being banned from various places. But this would have been just a bunch of hot air if the music had been rubbish. But it wasn't. Their debut album, Definitely Maybe, was a sensation. It showed up in stores on August 30th, 1994, just as Blur's Park Life was at its peak. Boy, people said, there's another bunch of lads that sound just as good. Very English they are. Oasis and Supersonic, which was released as a single two weeks before Blur's entire Park Life album came out. Perfect timing, as it turns out. That song was recorded in just one day, and in case you're wondering, the Elsa mentioned in the song was the giant Rottweiler who hung around the studio. The Elka Selsa reference is to her bad gas. Very flatulent dog, apparently. As we got to the end of 1994, three bands dominated the British music scene. There was Oasis, there was Blur, and there was Suede. That was fine, but things were about to explode. We should probably talk about where the word Britpop came from. In retrospect, it makes sense. British pop, right? Nice umbrella term. The first appearance of the word seems to have been in The Face, one of those new British magazines I mentioned earlier. There was an interview with Blur in the May 1994 issue riffing on the band's view of how the time had come for a renewed emphasis on British pop. The magazine then abbreviated that to Britpop. A few months after that, the Guardian newspaper used the word to describe this new renaissance in British music. But the real tipping point seemed to come in an issue of the NME in January 1995. And after that, everybody began to use Britpop to describe what was going on. In addition to heavy coverage of Blur and Oasis and Suede, the British music media felt duty-bound to uncover and anoint more candidates for homegrown superstardom. A favorite target of coverage became Elastica, featuring Justin Frieschman out front. Not only was she a former member of Suede, perfect, but she was also Damon Albarn's girlfriend. How awesome was that? Britpop had an official first couple. And it didn't hurt that Elastica's debut album was also fresh, very fun, and very good and also familiar sounding. Stutter, a single by Elastica from their self-titled debut album. The song came out in November 1994. By the time the album was released the following March, the Britpop party was really hopping. I've made a list of some of the people at the party. We had Shed 7, Echo Belly, Dodgy, Jean, Supergrass, Menswear, there was Cast, an Ocean Color Scene, and Sleeper. 
uh, salad, whiteout, marion, northern uproar, ash, these animal men, and black grape. Coverage of the music was nonstop in prints, on the radio, and on TV. Paparazzi were everywhere. Gossip was everywhere. Even America's Vanity Fair magazine felt compelled to do a feature story on Cool Britannia and Swing in London. The party reached its peak in the summer of 1995, and the best part was this war between Blur and Oasis. What began as a friendly sort of rivalry mushroomed into full-on hatred. From the media's point of view, it couldn't possibly get any better. In one corner, Blur, articulate defenders of the realm and diarists of modern British culture. In the other, Oasis, foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, drug-taking yobs, who are always acting as if you walked into the pub and spilled their pint on purpose. Just like the Beatles versus the Stones rivalry of the 1960s, right? Well, not really. That was a gentleman's game. The Beatles and the Stones were actually mates. Blur versus Oasis was an actual war. And it all came to a head in August of 1995. Blur announced that they would release their much-anticipated follow-up to Park Life on September 11th, 1995. Standard protocol dictated that the first single from the album would come three weeks earlier. It was called Country House. Meanwhile, Oasis was ready with their second album. It was set for release in early October, preceded by the first single sometime in mid-September, and it was called Roll With It. This was all nice and orderly. The two biggest bands in the land would each have their chance to have a number one single. Everyone would get good press, everyone would make money, and everybody would be happy. But then Oasis said... No, we've decided that we're going to release our single in mid-August. Oh, oh what's, what's that? Our, our date is seven days before Blur's? Oh, well, what are you going to do? Blur fired back by moving up the release date of Country House by seven days to the same day Oasis planned to unleash Roll With It. This was awesome. The two hottest, biggest, most hyped bands since the Beatles and the Stones were going head-to-head for chart supremacy in the same week. So there could only be one winner. And the best part about it? The bands hated each other. This was the peak of Britpop hysteria. Blur's record label and Oasis's record label pulled out all the stops. The media coverage was nonstop. All the papers, all the magazines, all the radio stations, bookies took bets. Everyone on the street was talking about Blur versus Oasis. Both Country House and Roll With It came out on August 14, 1995. The frenzy was so crazy that record sales across Britain were up 41% for the week. And when the final numbers were added up on Sunday, August the 20th, the winner was Blur. While Oasis sold 216,000 copies of Roll With It, Blur sold 274,000 copies of Country House. Blur, the winners of the epic Britpop showdown of August 1995. But when it came to the overall war, Oasis was the clear winner. Blur's Country House entered the charts at number one and was certified triple platinum in the UK within a year. It's very nice, very proud achievement. The Oasis album was What's the Story Morning Glory, 
It came out on schedule on October 2nd, 1995, and on that day, it sold at a rate of one every two minutes. Within a week, it had sold 350,000 copies, making it the fastest-selling British album ever to that point. And while The Great Escape ended up at about number 150 on the American charts, Morning Glory tootled along, selling 200,000 copies a week. Oasis, who, for a time, were the biggest band on planet Earth, thanks to their What's the Story Morning Glory album. And on the whole, Britpop itself could not possibly get any bigger. So you know what that means, right? There was only one direction left to go. Down. This is a look back at the Britpop era. The music, the personalities, and the wars. We're now coming up towards the end of 1995. Blur and Oasis are huge. Suede has crept back into the scene. Elastica is doing just fine, thank you. And there's one other band we need to mention. Pulp. This was a bit of a weird one. Jarvis Cocker founded Pulp in 1978. They'd languished in obscurity for a decade and a half. They were barely a footnote to British music history. Okay, they weren't even a footnote. Until they released an album in 1994, which was their fourth, called His and Hers. It's not bad. Actually, a pretty good record. Let's call it a breakthrough. But then came the next record. It was called Different Class and came out about a month after Oasis and Morning Glory. The notion of class has always permeated British society. And when people heard the first single from the album, it reached them in all the right ways. The song was based on an experience Jarvis Cocker had had with a fellow student at St. Martin's College of Art and Design. Her name, apparently, was Sophia Foka. That's the legend. She was from a well-off family who seemed to be interested in slumming with her schoolmates. Jarvis took her attitude, embellished it a bit for artistic sake, and, uh, well, it was a hit. Pulp and Common People, another huge hit in the year of Britpop, which was 1995. And the party just kept on going and going and going. But it had to end sometime, right? And it did. Like I said at the beginning, these perfect cultural musical storms tend to last for about six years. And as 1995 turned into 1996, it became apparent that Britpop was getting a little wobbly. And it was for a number of reasons. First of all, everyone was starting to lose focus. Every single indie label was throwing bands against the wall, hoping and praying that one of them would be the next Blur or the next Oasis. And if we're honest, a lot of them weren't very good. Second, everyone else was being criminally overexposed. Oasis was in the press constantly. And it seemed as Oasis went, so did the entire British music industry. It even got to the point that Noel's then-wife, Meg Matthews, had her shopping sprees detailed in the daily papers. And when that wasn't enough, she was given her own column where she wrote about all her excesses. And third, it was soon time for the major players to release new albums. Blur needed a follow-up to The Great Escape. And what could Oasis possibly do to exceed Morning Glory? And fourth, and this is something that no one really wanted to talk about, 
was all that heroin and cocaine that was messing everybody's minds. Drug use was rampant, and it was starting to take its toll, not only amongst musicians, but in the industry in general. The first concrete indication that something wasn't right was Be Here Now, the third Oasis album. The alcohol and cocaine budgets for this album were astronomical. The songs were too long, the melodies uninspired, and the record was just too thick with unnecessary layers of guitars. And it sounded kind of shrill to a lot of people. That's because cocaine messes with your ability to hear high frequencies. To normal ears, it was a bit screechy at the high end, but it sounded fine to Noel, though. But here's the important bit. There was no one willing to tell Oasis to go back and do anything again. You see, when you get that successful, everyone, including the record label, is afraid to do anything that might screw things up. So Noel was allowed to do as he saw fit. But even if this had been a better record, it would have still collapsed under the hype. There was no way it could live up to anyone's expectations. After Be Here Now faded into the background, Noel admitted that the album wasn't very good. Here's the quote. I wasn't prepared to make things any better. I'd get to a certain point and just say, screw it, that's good enough. We made a record to justify the drug habit. I was making the record to justify spending thousands on drugs. Stand by. Oasis and Stand By Me from the Be Here Now album. By the way, in 2015, Noel was offered the opportunity to go back and fix the record for a deluxe issue. He thought about it and even went into the studio to maybe edit some of the tracks into more manageable lengths. In the end, though, he said, Nah, screw it. I'll just butcher it. Let's leave it alone. Actually, I kind of like the way it is anyway. While drugs were a huge issue for Oasis, they were an even bigger problem for Elastica. Most of the band had managed to acquire heavy heroin habits, including leader Justine Frischman. They couldn't get it together long enough to write a second album. Meanwhile, Justine and Damon Albarn broke up, mostly over drug problems. Britpop's first couple were no more. And that wasn't good. And then another weird twist of fate. Tony Blair was elected prime minister. Back in university, he played in a rock band, and he loved Britpop. He even invited people like Noel Gallagher around to 10 Downing Street for a chat and a glass of wine. It's nice for Tony, but very bad optics for Noel. All it said was that this music of the people had been co-opted by the establishment and the government. And finally, there was the blur pivot. Damon Albarn's stunning aesthetic reversal. Remember how he had led the charge against the foreign grunge imperialists by replacing American alternative rock with music that was proudly British? By 1997, he'd had a change of heart. Damon had become fascinated by lo-fi American alternative music from bands like Pavement and the Pixies. He was also getting deeper into obscure German progressive rock from the 1970s and several forms of music from sub-Saharan Africa. And he began to hang out less in London and more in Iceland, where things were much different. This manifested itself for all to hear in February 1997, when Blur cleared the decks with a self-titled CD that signaled a new sonic path. This was not Britpop. Blur 
and their massive international hit Song 2 from 1997. By the time the year was over, almost everyone was distancing themselves from anything to do with Britpop. The party was officially over. The hangover was bad. The drugs had taken their toll. And the public and the media were bored. It was all Spice Girls and Girl Power and Wannabe. But everything was right on schedule. About six years had gone by, and the wave was over. Oasis stuck together, but were in their own little bubble that allowed them to continue for another decade. Blur broke up for a while before reforming for some big money. Elastica evaporated, and Pulp went on an indefinite hiatus. And what replaced Britpop? Well, a crop of new bands. There was Radiohead, for example. Although they coexisted with Britpop for a couple of years, they were somehow outside that scene. And when they released OK Computer in 1997, they showed that they were on a different planet altogether. Then there was Coldplay. They came along too late for Britpop, lucky for them, but had a sound that had some wide appeal. They exploded into another massive British export. But there was no question that Britpop was officially done, consigned to the history books, just like grunge and technopop. Its influence would live on, but all things must pass, you know? Damn, it was good while it lasted. If you're looking to connect with me about anything regarding this show, do it through my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Email me, sign up for the daily newsletter, and get into all kinds of music-related stuff. And, of course, you can always follow me on Twitter, you can stalk me on Facebook, observe me on Instagram, and I'm on Google+, Plus for the six of you that are too. I, I haven't forsaken you. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.